0: Welcome to the Two Cities Podcast, a podcast about theology, culture, and discipleship. And this is episode 126. In this episode, we're talking about identity and religious enmity with Dr. Sam Perry and Dr. Elizabeth Shively. Dr. Sam Perry is associate professor in the Department of Sociology at the University of Oklahoma, and Dr. Elizabeth Shively is senior lecturer in New Testament at St. Mary's College at the University of St. Andrews in Scotland. Team members on the episode from the two cities include Dr. Chris Porter and myself, Dr. John Anthony Dunn. So, Chris, this was a fantastic conversation with Dr. Perry and Dr. Shively. It was especially fun uh, because this was our first time recording a live episode where all of the participants were in the same room using the same equipment. And of course, we were there in Australia for a conference that you were organizing. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that that conference to to set up this conversation?
1: Sure. Yeah. The conference was on um, cognitive and socio-scientific approaches to religious enmity. Uh, part of a bigger research project I'm working on, uh, thinking about religious enmity in various different spaces. So we had uh, a whole bunch of people together for two days and a workshop just to uh, start thinking about uh, religious enmity from that cognitive position, uh, which is often so separate from what we do, uh, I mean, especially what I do as a biblical scholar, but from um, the domains and, and the interdisciplinary areas are often so separate that we, we, we don't have a whole huge amount of crossover. And, uh, and that means that the, a lot of things that we're, we're observing and a lot of parts of the conference where there was so much um, confluence and so, so much engagement, we often miss because there's people that we just don't have the opportunity to be able to to engage in those areas. And so the conference was yeah, really drawing people together from those different uh, spaces. Um, and so in this conversation, you'll hear, you'll hear Sam as a sociologist uh, reflecting on a whole bunch of his work, as well as Lou Shively with her work on cognition and myself with my, um, uh, my work in socio-cognitive spaces, uh, reflecting on that, that interaction between the three. And then we call out John as, as a way of being able to test out some of those things and, and see what he's learned from the week. It
0: was a lovely conversation, a lovely way to cap off just a fantastic conference with uh, two of our uh, keynote speakers and uh, kind of pull some threads together in, in, in a fun, a fun way. And without further ado, here's our conversation with Dr. Sam Perry and Dr. Elizabeth Shifley.
1: thanks so much for coming and joining us on the pod it's great we've had this conference here the last few days and so uh, we thought we'd just do a bit of a debrief and a, a recap of the, the things that we've had here for the figuring the enemy the socio-scientific approaches to religious enmity conference I'm interested in your in your reflections and and how you found it
2: no I, I thought it was uh, fantastic to be able to um, learn from colleagues doing interesting work around the world uh, really and uh, you know, to be able to share a little bit of my own research, but mostly just to learn uh, just how uh, uh, social scientific approaches to biblical texts, uh, applying really, I think, contemporary and relevant social theory to uh, biblical texts in ways that I've never seen before or thought about but are, but are uh, eminently convincing and uh, I think necessary and I think really brought a lot of things out of the text that I had never uh, seen myself. And so I, I really appreciated just being able to, to learn and glean from colleagues.
3: Yeah, same. I thought it was a great conference. And it was great to begin with Sam and uh, his method of, uh, of social scientific research and thinking about religion in America. And then at the very end to have a presentation on the book of Genesis uh, and everything else in between. And there seemed to be a number of factors or themes that we were all interested in. And uh, things that keep, kept coming up, like what is the in-group and what is the out-group and what are subgroups and what does that mean and what does that look like and uh, what it means to be included or not included, or even thinking about how various media works. That, I think, was the most interesting thing to me, is from, from tweets to... Uh, ancient texts to more contemporary ones and thinking uh doing some ethnographic research hearing about that so i think yeah how how does various media work to include and exclude that was really interesting yeah,
0: yeah it was really a really fantastic conference and i think it might be um interesting uh to tell our listeners who uh, didn't get to hear your wonderful papers uh, a little bit about you know maybe some of what you uh
1: what you presented Especially because Sam, you've been on a podcast before, but uh, you're presenting something completely different to, to to what you were last time. We were. last time we had you I'm talking about pornography, uh, and and the American porn problem. Um, so, what are we uh, talking about today?
2: Yeah, so um, my emerging research, I think the last few years have been um, studying white Christian nationalism as an ideology. So something that people internalize, a system of beliefs and values and myths about. American history and uh, really how they envision America's future, um, but I think the next direction this research needs to go is is really how Christian nationalism works not only as an ideology but as a, a political strategy, as a as a rhetorical move that politicians can use and leverage, uh, and exactly what we were we were talking about with other biblical texts as well. Like that that in the conference, I think a lot of the presenters really uh, presented an awareness that even biblical authors and people within the narrative understand how in-groups and out-groups work and how rhetoric leverages uh, the ability of of actors in positions of power to be able to marginalize or to to stigmatize or to... Position themselves against outgroups, and so uh, really, what I was posi- what I was what I was presenting was how Christian nationalist rhetoric has not only increased in recent years, both in terms of its explicit. Uh, you know, uh, explicit content within political discourse. And I I looked at Trump primarily as my example, but also Islamophobic uh, rhetoric that uh, really positions American identity versus Islam as this religion of violence versus Christianity, which is the American identity and how those things are wrapped up. And really, uh, the thing I was building to in that presentation was talking about how Christian nationalist rhetoric can be used as as a what I call a racial trigger. And that is because of the social, bringing the social identity aspect into that is is, within the American cultural contexts, because of white hegemony, because of because whiteness is just assumed in so many ways, and it's uh, uh, really conflated with Americanness and also just Christian identity. For many white Americans, we find that when you when you speak of Christian heritage, Christian values, Christian nation, in their minds, they think people like me. They think they think white. Uh, without saying it explicitly, very few people would actually say that explicitly, like Christian means white, American means white. Very few people would say that. And yet we can show <laughs> yeah, with data, and a lot of other studies have shown that, that uh, Americans uh, conflate the two identities. And so what I was building to was showing how uh, a savvy politician uh, can can make reference to threats against Christianity. Christianity is under attack, it's under siege, and there's all of this kind of like uh, persecution of Christians. And he can actually prime, or he or she can actually prime an audience of white Christians to think, well, white people are under attack and and elicit some kind of a racialized response against Democrats, against Black Lives Matter, against Colin Kaepernick or CRT or Wokeness or or whatever. Uh, And so I think that's kind of the payoff there is is understanding how Christian nationalist rhetoric and discourse can be leveraged in order to elicit responses that are not explicitly religious, but they're actually, in fact, subtly racialized.
1: Elizabeth, you, go, you gave a lecture on, on the other end of the spectrum from the modern, uh, right back to uh, thinking about uh, the biblical texts and the Gospels. Uh,
3: yeah, I gave a lecture on the Syrophoenician woman on in the Gospel of Mark, and my interest is looking at how stories function to, well, as triggers, as Sam said, and elements in stories, how they function as triggers Uh, To shape identity so that that was my interest in this presentation and so I also wanted to get beyond simply trying to figure out what Jesus meant or what Jesus said in terms of historical questions to think about what was Mark doing in his presentation Mm -hmm. of the Syrophoenician woman or Jesus's engagement with the Syrophoenician woman in the context of the whole unfolding narrative and so Some things that are interesting to me are the fact that Mark presents Jesus as speaking in parables, speaking in nothing but parables, and how Mark also presents Jesus as being friendly or at least welcoming in some ways to Gentiles. There are people from Tyre and Sidon in chapter three who come uh, among others for healing. And then Jesus heals the, or casts a whole horde of demons out of the man from Gerasa or wherever he's from uh, in in chapter five. And that's the longest healing story in Mark. So it must be significant. But once we get to chapter seven, Mark includes some triggers, if you will, or some ways of priming his intended audience. And those among the actual audience who would have heard this would have reacted certainly in some ways when Mark describes the woman as a Gentile, a Syrophoenician. Mark is giving that information. And so That information would have been a trigger to to think about this woman in a certain way among certain members of his audience. And and then how Jesus speaks to her, our tendency today is to look at that and to be offended, what Jesus says to her uh, about feeding the children first and making this contrast between the children and, and the dogs. But... For me, once once I put it in context and remember that this is a, a parable, Jesus is telling her a parable, the force of that is significant because Mark has already told us that this is Jesus' MO for speaking to outsiders. So Jesus is treating her as an outsider by speaking to her in a parable. And not speaking to her necessarily as one who is unclean or one who is an enemy, which is, I think, the way Mark is triggering an audience to respond. But Jesus treats her as an outsider, as one who wouldn't understand. And the force of the story then is as we have these different ways of thinking about how uh, insiders would be characterized, the prototypical features of insiders and the prototypical features of outsiders, the woman's response then turns that that on its head because she, she doesn't just explain the parable, she inhabits the world of the parable in the way that she answers. And so she places herself actually as within the outsider group still in the way she tells her own parable back but in the way that she answers i think that's highly ironic because she shows that she is actually part of the in-group if you will when nobody else in the story so far has has been able to show understanding of a parable without jesus's teaching the disciples get that, and we're still not sure that they understand anything. Mm-hmm. So I, th- I think that's significant for helping, at least helping us think through some some ways of uh, of how... I suggested ways that that might help us think through ways that stories might have helped an ancient audience and help us today do an act of metacognition or thinking about thinking uh, when we find ourselves in similar situations.
1: Yeah, I find, I find it interesting that... that... Uh, between the 2,000-odd years of, of history that we have between, I think, about the 21st-century politics and 1st-century uh, parables that we're st- we, we are still thinking in the same way. So mm. when uh, a politician can get on stage and say, uh, Jesus was killed by his government because he didn't have enough AR-15s, okay. uh, their audience giggles at that. Um, part of it's because... Unlike the woman in uh, in unlike the Samaritan woman, sh- their audience hasn't in- inhabited the world of of what Jesus is doing with the swords. You know, two swords is enough, um, and you know the rhetoric of two AR AR-15s would have been just fine. Actually, um, it, it it shows that people aren't actually understanding the metaphor behind uh, uh, the parable that um, that is being embedded in that. Uh, AR-15 narrative it's in it's it's doing the same thing as what Jesus is doing except uh it the the crowd at, at that event is more like the disciples they just don't get it at all um and and it seems that people you know the metaphor is completely the parable sorry the parable is completely lost on the on the audience there
2: yeah I think um one of the things that I think I'm pulling away from the from the conference that I think uh, really came out in a lot of the presentations, uh, uh, not, you know, not, not including mine was, um, was really the importance of this kind of broader cultural context and, and all of this background knowledge that would be necessary to like really pick up on a lot of the rhetorical messages, both from the author and within the narrative. Mm -hmm. Uh, one of the things we write about in our, our recent book Flag and the cross is, is this, this understanding of American identity as a deep story, um, that really requires this kind of this, this, uh, this cultural context of, of, uh, where Americans find themselves in this narrative, and how they they really resent that narrative being violated. They feel like the the deep story of of of, of America, uh, in the minds of many Americans, is that uh, America was founded as a Christian nation, or at the very least on biblical principles. Uh, that uh, the founders were Christian. They intended uh, the laws to reflect broad Judeo-Christian. Priorities and values, um, and they often don't recognize that these are basically just kind of like white traditionalist middle class values that that that's very little biblical about uh, a lot of that. But nevertheless, they find themselves within this story, and so they 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 look around at the country currently and they see that story being changed, violated in ways by immigrants, by outsiders, by religious outsiders, by liberals or whoever the, the, the enemy happens to be. Um, and so a lot of the work that I think is being done in these kind of cultural conflicts now is is really trying to them trying to to reify and reinforce, uh, the deep story as they understand it, with this kind of vision of like what America ought to be, and so like I think that um, I just kept being reminded of that again and again as I as I listened to the the presentations of of like how all of these people are are, are embedded deeply within this cultural context that is often unspoken, uh, and requires somebody analyzing that context to be able to say like okay here are the components of this narrative that um, that you actually assume uh, without recognizing.
1: Yeah, I think I think sometimes. It's become a bit of a trope on this podcast that um, I'm the as the Australian I'll be the one to say as an Australian, <laughs> I, I, I just don't get it sometimes when I, I look at American culture and and, right. and we we talk about um, either guns or some of the some purity culture stuff and things like that um, and and it's be, because I'm not in that deep cult deep, uh, I'm I'm not in that deep story right. I I don't have access to it Was there a pun there deep cult <laughs> <laughs> No pun whatsoever, um, but but I, I think yeah the. If you you can learn the deep story, you can learn the narrative that sits behind things, uh, but it, often it means that it, it takes a long time to do so. And it, it, it there's a, an innateness to being raised in a culture, which means you understand it, and therefore people can can leverage that. And and it often it's people aren't the people that they're leveraging uh, the deep story against don't actually realize that that's ha- that's happening. Um, and it's it's really through fresh eyes that you, that um, you can see it.
3: Yeah, I would agree with you about the value of seeing something through fresh eyes. and so since uh, I, we've moved to the UK since we've lived in Scotland for the past ten years, it gives me a different perspective on the kinds of things that are going on in America and thinking about the sort of things that that Sam was was talking about with, with looking at how, how American Christians and American Evangelical Christians define themselves, or what are the the characters, the prototypical characteristics of of a Christian or an Evangelical or of a Republican, and there are there are ways that we understand ourselves, whether we real a lot of times we're not aware of it, and I think this was something valuable f- for me is hearing the different conversations about how again, how different media, how different texts can reveal the prototypical characteristics by which a certain group understands who they are and not just understands who they are, but understands who others are or what others aren't mm-hmm. in relation to, to I guess, the in-group. And, and so I, I think as I th- as I think back to the the Syrophoenician woman again in Mark and what Mark is trying to do, we can look at an ancient text like that as well and see how it reveals uh, what different groups thought was the in-group or should have been the in-group or the characteristics, the prototypical characteristics that for various groups may. May define what the family of God looks like. How how Jesus perhaps was redefining that. How Mark was even redefining that by by means of story and and how how looking at how looking at stories or even you know tweet is a little story perhaps. Right. <laughs> and so how how these little or big stories can uh, can be revealing about uh, what what others think. They are about and can help us to step back and think. Okay, how how, how am I thinking about who I am and what I belong to? Yeah,
2: yeah I, I think um, one of the one of the uh, I think the real benefits of of a conference like this, where we were actively trying to bring in social scientific approaches to understanding the various problems and issues that we're talking about, whether that's text or it's some kind of contemporary politics or religion. Um, is is giving conceptual tools to understand what's going on in a language to even understand like what's happening that we we might understand kind of intuitively we like have a feel for it uh, but we need to, we need conceptual tools to be able to break that down and have it and to, to have a look at it I was uh, talking about it with with Christopher on the on the way over here just walking uh, after having coffee and I was talking about like learning Greek for the first time. Like all of us have been in seminary and we had to learn Greek at some point. And and one of the challenges initially, if all you've ever known is English your 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 whole life, is you actually actually need to even to learn Greek. You need to be able to learn some some very basic linguistics like parts of speech, uh, because you rarely ever think about parts of speech like verbs and, and you know and participles and infinitives. What are those and and uh, verbal aspect and 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 tense? Like we yeah. we know that that stuff is is there. But until you actually kind of remember, okay, this is how you break down a sentence. This is how, you, this is how grammar works in syntax. Uh, you, you can't understand the language quite as well or what it's doing. And I think this is exactly what the social scientific approaches that we're trying to employ are, are giving us, these conceptual tools to be able to break down a narrative, a discourse, the, the goal of a writer, in enable in, in, in to make it intelligible so that we can kind of pick that apart, not in a, a critical way, but in picking it apart and be able to analyze it effectively, I think.
1: Yeah, and I, I really think, um, so sometimes we read things like a tweet or we read a piece of modern discourse and you kind of go, uh, it's evident that the, the author or, or the, the, the person speaking is trying to communicate something to a very specific audience. Maybe it's a co- bit of coded language or it's a dog whistle, um, and it's it's something that's going on there. But how how do we actually track that down? What what's the cognitive processes behind the the communication that, that that's occurred? And I think quite often we uh, we have to innately get it. Like you know, otherwise communication breaks down. We, we can't right. we, we can't have this discussion. Mm-hmm. You, we, me talking to this microphone doesn't make any sense to to to, to anyone listening on wherever anyone is. Uh, if if the innate processes aren't working and, and aren't innately working um, and yet being able to pull that apart means that you can ask in, and interrogate those questions of well what would happen if if you know given this means this for this audience uh, what would actually happen if, if you translate it for another audience mm-hmm. and and also for that matter what happens when a, an author takes something and and reuse in another location um, so uh, taking a private discussion say i i I present a paper on uh, on galatians 2 taking the private discussion between paul and and peter Mm -hmm. and making that public what does that do to the discourse what does it activate in people's minds such that they understand it in a different way Mm -hmm. um which you know we see all the time in in politics uh we we the the whistleblower comes out with um, some new thing a new piece of information which is previously private to everyone uh, in, and then suddenly as a public item, it becomes politically uh, powerful mm-hmm. and, it, and it becomes something that it, you can, people can work with in order to be able to uh, denigrate or to, to, to build up as well. I mean, it, these aren't necessarily negative things. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes people come, up, come forward with information that actually benefits uh, a, na- a narrative or benefits um, uh, someone's position in the world. So John, you presented a paper on Galatians. Uh, do you want to give us an overview of that and uh, where you went with it?
0: Yeah, so I was mostly interested in Paul's polemics and thinking about what does he mean when he says that his opponents, uh, which are often referred to as the the agitators, um, that they don't keep the law. And there's a lot of different ways that people have understood that. You know, how, how exactly is he... Sort of vilifying them or denigrating them for their inability to keep the law, if if that's exactly what he's doing. And so I was interested in in, in doing that for this conference because um, Galatians, uh, I think, is uh, perhaps the earliest uh, Christian document or one of the earliest Christian documents, and it's expressly polemical. So. We might have something like the origins of Christian polemic, at least in writing, you know, in this text. And so I kind of wanted to uh, uh, look at this one particular accusation and what Paul might be doing. And um, I think what he's doing is... um, He's not talking about, you know, their uh, inability to keep the law perfectly as is often thought or, or you know, there's other suggestions that I that I discussed in the paper. But um, I think what he's done in the letter itself is he has portrayed them as doing things that are against the law, namely uh, coercing the, gen- the Gentiles to be circumcised, uh, which Paul characterizes in a particular way, but also... He has positively stated what uh, true law fulfillment looks like, which is loving neighbor uh, and bearing burdens uh, of others, and these sorts of things. And so, um, this kind of love and and communal communal love and these sorts of things are not being displayed uh, by them. In fact, they're they're expressing the uh, prototypical behavior of an out group with the works of the flesh. And I think Paul has kind of tailored that list uh, not not to be this kind of generic vice list, like yeah, here's be- here's here's just a random kind of proverbial statement about things you want to avoid, but he's actually uh, doing some polemical sort of ar- argumentation there, and over against that is the, the, the prototypical behavior of the in-group, which ought to be the, the, the fruit of the spirit that, that is produced by the spirit. Um, and, and so the non-fulfillment of the law, or whatever that, that he has uh, kind of accused them of, uh, is expressly this lack of love, and then also specifically the way in which they are uh, promoting circumcision in the community.
3: I realized that there's one more element of the story of the Syrophoenician woman that is really important. Something that I see going on there is if we look at how Mark presents Jesus and Jesus's interaction with Gentiles and building up to this story, and also how Mark presents Jesus speaking in parables, right before this story, we have this interaction between Jesus and the Pharisees over the the washing of hands, and Jesus tells a little parable about things that go in the body and things that go out of the body, and his disciples don't understand it, so he explains it to them. We're still not sure they understand it, but it's right after this that he uh, has this engagement with the Syrophoenician woman, and Jesus tells her, a little parable and she understands it without the benefit of his teaching. And this is a stark contrast to what we've seen, well, with anybody so far and, and even with the disciples. And so I think something that's going on here that's important to see is we, we want to We we want to make a decision that Jesus is either he has his mind changed by the woman or the woman changes his mind or she doesn't change his mind. And I think it's more complex than that. I don't think that the woman changes Jesus's mind with regard to Gentiles because we see that he already heals Gentiles. He seems to have a positive view of Gentiles or at least he doesn't have a negative view of Gentiles so far. And also Mark presents the full launch of the Gentile mission as with the, the full understanding of who Jesus is as happening after the resurrection. We see this particularly in Mark 13 where Mark uh, where Jesus is teaching his disciples about what they can expect after he dies and he says, you know, you'll take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Uh, so I don't think that the woman changes Jesus's mind with regard to Gentiles or with regard to a Gentile mission. Jesus speaks about that. And Mark presents that. But I do think the woman changes Jesus' mind about healing her daughter because of the faith that she shows through explaining the parable. And the story, I think, can help any ancient audience and then any audience since then think about in looking at the unfolding of the story and looking at this story, what does it mean to belong to the family of God? And I think that's an important outcome.
1: Yeah, and I think that's that's one of the things that's so powerful about the, the Syrophoenician woman. Uh, is that. I think that's one of the things that's so powerful about the story about the Syrophoenician woman is that as an outsider, as an outgroup member, she understands what the in-group should understand. Um, and in, in comparison in Galatians, Paul's saying to the in-group, here are the things that you should understand, and there's these out-group members who are trying to stop you from doing that. Um, and often, I, I think, we read uh the sort of syphonician woman as if the she is an in-group member and she's being rejected um this is harshness there and conversely we read galatians as if the um the people who are out group members are are in group members and therefore there's this sense in which they 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 are uh or the entire batch is spoiled by the poor levin you know to use the biblical imagery
3: yeah i think that's i think that's A really great point and also this is probably the case in Galatians and I think also in Mark in Mark neither Jesus nor Mark says that there isn't an inside and outside group so the story of the Syrophoenician woman and anything that follows that or that precedes it there's nothing in Mark that removes an inside and outside group boundary what happens is that the inside group is redefined. Who the inside, who the members of the inside group are and what the characteristics, what what their prototypical characteristics are. And it's a a wider net than is assumed by the characters in the story and probably by many of Mark's earliest readers. And it's a wider net than is often assumed today, which I think connects to American politics and the connection between religion and politics. And so Jesus doesn't turn anyone away who wants to follow him.
0: And even in, in Galatians, I mean, this is like the start of the Gentile mission, and um, the, the in-group is expanding to include all these people who were previously, yeah, not not far, far off from, from uh, anything that was going on with uh, the people of Israel.
1: Yeah, and and I think one of the things then is often these texts then get used as closure texts. They get used to to mm. to, to close down these intergroup discourse. Um, so I remember Mark's story of the the Nation woman being used once uh, in, by a preacher in order to say uh, you, the the things are the the gifts of the church are for the people in the church, uh, and we should not be giving them to the dogs except by uh, by extension. You know, the the people outside the church. Can have the crumbs that fall off the table, but they they don't deserve um, the actual blessings of God because they're not part of the church, um, and so there there is a sense in which those texts uh, are able to be leveraged and, and improper what I would say improperly used to cause violence, mm-hmm. um, and so uh, on. One hand, some scholars are worried that the, that the text inherently is is violent against the Syrophoenician woman, but that i think quite often what is more the case is that they get um they powerful texts because they are able to be used and interpreted in order to be to cause violence uh in that way
3: yeah i agree i think that's a reading that goes against the grain of the text in mm-hmm. a, at any time in its history yeah,
1: yeah and, and and i think having a better uh having a better understanding of the cultural context and, and those yes. sort of things helps but uh, we're really bucking against our cognitive biases, um, you know, the, the bias to interpret things as if it's always towards us as a, as a group, as if uh, we are, um, you know, the, the center of the text's world. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's why you can interpret things such as uh, Psalm 109 as if it's related to a sitting president. Uh, why you can re- re- interpret almost anything in the Bible as if it's related to your specific situation? Jeremiah twenty nine eleven is not about uh, Israel being in exile, uh, but it's about uh, the fact that uh, you know you can stamp it on the side of your coffee mug and have it about the fact that God is going to um, provide you with a new house. Um, you know these sort of interpretations.
2: Well, it seems. I mean, it seems like those kinds of interpretations that that would see like. Uh, you know, the the blessings of God are for the, for the, for the people of God. I think it kind of, it's, uh, I mean, it seems like such a, um, a prominent theme in the gospels especially is that, um, you know, Jesus says, don't you love people who already love you? I mean, what, what, what better is that, you know, like, like, the gospel writers jesus uh clearly understands that it is just intuitive that we love people who are like us that are in our in group mm-hmm. and so the subversive project of, of much of the gospels and certainly jesus's ministry is is to expand that and to say like actually you know you're you're gonna love those people who are not like you who hate you and mm-hmm. and who persecute you and that is my mission is to love those who have uh, to unto death uh, those who have uh, come against me so I, I mean I, I, I just yeah I feel like the, that interpretation of the Syrophoenician woman I think does justice to I think this broader uh, obviously to Mark certainly within that context but uh, you know the broader ministry of Jesus in the Gospels
1: and, and yet uh, so many Christians today interpret the love those who persecute you and invert that and say um, we're going to be persecuted uh, we're the ones being persecuted so therefore <laughs> right. we need the loving um, and so I'm thinking of, of your work, Seven, Fag and the Cross, um, about whether or not Christians believe that they're going to be persecuted in the next year. Um, right. and, and there's that trend uh, where where people who feel like they are already um, th- under threat f- therefore amplify that into uh, other racial groups. Do you want to talk about a bit about that?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think we absolutely see, and this is I'm just bringing into kind of like broader trends and what we see in American Christianity that, that uh, grieve me. Um, I think there is the one is this just uh, a pervasive perception that christians are already being persecuted and we're the we're the most persecuted like more pre- persecuted than anybody and especially that we see that in survey data that like white christians especially white evangelicals are more likely to say that christians and white people are more persecuted than black americans or you know uh, almost any other group um, that they 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 receive the brunt of that and their response to that has been to rally around uh, in either institutions or leaders that will help them support their their own power um, uh, because of the perception that like we need to get control of this so that nobody can 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 come against it uh, it seems I think antithetical to the expectation of the gospel and Jesus's own ministry um, but I think beneath that you also see and I think this is a broader trend I was uh, tweeting about this the other day, is, is um, I think a, a lack of a lack of maybe this has always been there, but I think it's just being really salient now, just a lack of any kind of burden or compassion for those that we perceive as outsiders, enemies, those who persecute us. It's not love those who persecute you at all. It's very much like control, leverage, get, gain power over them, vote in the Cyrus who will kick their butts and take it, take it back for, 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 for us. Um, because there is that sense that something has been robbed from us taken from us we are we are the ones being wronged nobody else is we're the ones who are being uh, being attacked um, and i you know um, personally as a as a christian myself i feel like that is inconsistent with what christians are called to be is, is uh, aliens and strangers in this world and certainly like we have we have rights in the united states like and there there's an expectation that, that we have rights as well um, and yet there's this obsession with making sure that nobody takes away our, our power to the point where we with this the, the gun worship the celebration of the, the, our access to violence as, as the end all be all of citizenship in fact and, and which just seems like, I mean, gosh, this this syncretistic kind of mm-hmm. w- what is Christian about this anymore? And, and is this just kind of a Christian like it's a it becomes a, a a religion of white Christian ethnoculture. and that that really is like what we talk about in the book, I think, is that somewhere along the lines, this has gone from, I think, Orthodox Christianity to some kind of religion of American christianness like that is that is connected to like white ethno culture mm-hmm. um and so you can have strong man leaders and you can have gun worship and you can have uh this narrative that persecution will be met with like response uh, rather than love sacrifice uh, you know acceptance um so um, and I think that gets read, that gets read, I think, uncharitably, I think that what I've just explained gets read is like, well, you just want Christians to shut their mouths in, in public, or you want us to just kind of endorse every mm. godless uh, thing. I don't necessarily think that has to be the case, but, but I think that, that that becomes that either or. Like either we are fighting doggedly to take the country back, or we just give up and say, well, I guess we're all, you know, just signing on to this. Uh, and
1: and it, it brings that divide where Christian nationalism has now become ultra-Christian nationalism because Christian has been left behind. It's just ultra-nationalism. Right. Like,
3: And I I think it, these kinds of culture wars, if you will, expose what people think it means to be a Christian within a certain context to the point where it becomes this is what it means to be a Christian and uh, rather than this is what it means to be a Christian like contextually or to involve and and so I mean, we may throw around, okay, we're talking about social identity theory. We talk about prototypical characteristics of in-groups and out-groups. And some people might be listening to this and their, their ears are glazing over, their eyes are glazing over. Uh, you know, this just sounds like academic um, you know, googly-gop. But I think it's it, theory can be important for just helping us to step back and to think think about what we're saying and what we're doing and what our what the implications of our conversations are and if we recognize that social identity theory helps us to recognize that we we belong to groups we think of ourselves in groups and we think of others in groups it's just how we think as human beings how our cognitive processes work to, consider something new we encounter a new person in a new group and then evaluate it according to what we already know these prototypical characteristics of what we already know we're we are classifying beings that's how we think and what we do and how we make sense of the world and so it's it's helpful to recognize in the US that American Christians are in a particular context that affects the way they think but that has to be separated out somewhat from what i guess the essence or the prototypical characteristics of what a christian is and as as i mentioned earlier living in the uk has exposed this for me because i can't think of a british christian or say a scottish christian who would perhaps define the or explain the pro, or think about the prototypical characteristics of what it means to be a christian in the way that that someone embedded in american political culture would and that's important to recognize or somebody in germany or someone in asia or someone in australia how they might think about it i think it's important to recognize or thinking about theory can help us to step back and and think about how the way we categorize what it means to be a Christian uh, is is actually working, so that we might even rethink it.
1: John, I'm interested um, in so the Galatian situation with the agitators. It does seem like there there is some form of sort of power dynamic that's happening. There is, you know, can we draw any form of parallel um, between what's ha- happening? perhaps in in the US or in many contexts, but you know as Sam's very clearly shown in, uh, in the US, uh, and what's happening with the agitators they seem to be um, some people who are feeling like they, they're persecuted or there's a threat of persecution and therefore there's um, a, a response which is uh, rather different.
0: I think one of the dangers about talking about persecution or anything that um, smacks of that is uh, in the States, we have a massive uh, persecution complex, as we were Mm -hmm. talking about. And so uh, it's very um, I'm constantly uh, trying to um, create a lot of distance when I talk about this in certain contexts so that people don't just, you know, start you know, agreeing and like, oh yeah, yeah, we're, you know, we're, we're all, we were persecuted back then and we're being persecuted now and it's like, no, no, this is a highly contextual situation that I'm describing. I'm, you know, not talking about, you know, um, you know, the fact that you, you know, you, you don't want to bake a cake for a gay couple, you know, it's like, like that kind of thing, you know, like just make the damn cake, you know, that's how I feel. But um like this is, this is that is...
1: you coercing them? Of...
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't want to be coercive, but um I just think that um, these are non, not uh, apples and apples, you know what I mean There's, we're talking about very different sorts of situations. So that's one of the things that's constantly in the back of my mind is you know it's kind of like the work that um, Candida Moss has, has done you know like um, one of the things that drives her work on persecution and martyrdom and these sorts of things is uh, yeah not wanting like a lot of those narratives to just continue to fuel the persecution complex that we see, especially in American Christianity.
1: One of the, the challenges in this space is uh, what we might think of as the ethics of, of, of this sort of work. Um, it's very easy to stay in your own lane, um, In the whole metaphor of swimming where you, know, you stay in your own lane, don't, don't move out and, and do and bridge things. Um, w- with my work when I was um, doing my PhD on uh, schism and, and, and schismatic uh, areas in the church, I was I was actually told by someone that uh, it's dangerous to do that because someone might be able to pick up your research and learn how to be a better schismatic. Um, that, and, and, you know, I, I've worked in, in radicalism and, and researching radicalism before. And so I, I've had the same thing. People have been concerned that, you know, why should we research radicalism? And because that surely tells people how to be better radicals and not be detected while doing so and, and I, I think there there is it, it is worth this sort of discussion as to to uh, more broadly interdisciplinary and, and academic research as a whole um, but interdisciplinary research especially there, there is an ethical element to it that we need to do it well but we need to do it in such a way that it doesn't bring harm to the disciplines that we're that we're working within so I'm thinking Sometimes in interdisciplinary work, you um, find people coming to, to a topic with an, an, a grasping of the innateness of it. So, you know, we, innately we do things in groups. We understand group identity. Um, and so you come to everything and interpret everything as an in-group, out-group debate, for example. Um, so everyone must be in, in, in an in-group or an out-group. And then the reality is things are more complex than that. We are all in multiple in-groups. And there are a plethora of outgroups at any one time. And we, we, we switch between them. Um, but sometimes if you're only interpreting things in terms of in-groups and outgroups in one specific area and it's a fixed, must-be this dualism, uh, that can actually do violence to not just the text but the interpretation of it and the application of it. Um, and so uh, that, act, that interpretation actually uh, f- does violence to uh, how, we, how we exegete. Um, so, for example, in Mark and the Syrophoenician woman, oh, sorry, in Jesus and the Syrophoenician woman in Mark, um, if it is just an in-group out-group debate, and uh, then w- you do get those sort of interpretations that the Gentiles are, you know, the Gentile mission hasn't be, hasn't started, and and the Syrophoenician woman should be pu- pushed out and things like that. But the reality is far more complex. Yeah. Um, so uh, it's probably worth, um, yeah, just interested in in your own reflections on what what are the ethics of interdisciplinary work how do we do it well um and certainly from my perspective part of that is i feel completely and woefully unable to do a lot of uh, sorry completely woefully inadequate a lot of the time to do biblical studies because i'm, I'm i feel like a newbie uh, in, in the biblical studies area and a lot of my research has been in social sciences um But then I read social sciences work and I feel completely and woefully inadequate to do that. And so maybe there is something about um, feeling inadequate all the time that is helpful there. Um, But I'm interested in your reflections on that as well.
3: One thing I would say initially is that the study of the Bible, it seems, has always been interdisciplinary just by nature of the kind of thing it is because the the text is well it's a text for instance so it's using language and it's using language in a particular historical context. So already, some kind of language study, literary study, some kind of historical study is necessary. And so there are interdisciplinary elements that are necessary all the time. So I think that's when we say interdisciplinary, again, that's another one of those buzzwords that can cause the ears to glaze over or the eyes. But once we recognize that the Bible itself is interdisciplinary or, or invites is interdisciplinary studies and its study has always been interdisciplinary. I think that can perhaps uh, open a conversation then to what interdisciplinary study can and should continue to look like.
2: I, th- I think um, uh, sociology in particular is, is, uh, is well, it's one of the reasons I love sociology so much, uh, as, uh, it's, it is, you know, kind of essentially eclectic. Like we just steal from everybody and, and not in a And I don't mean in an unethical way. I, I think that actually, I th- I'm glad we're having the conversation about the ethics of interdisciplinary work. Cause I think, um, I love being able to pull from other disciplines. I love being able to, to, to draw on theories and, and, uh, data collection techniques and, and perspectives. Um, and yet it it is with each time you do that, it is like, when when you first got into graduate school, or when you first uh, undertake kind of this uh, academia is like a conversation that is that is happening, and you are for a time you are eavesdropping in on that conversation, and you're listening to people who are experts in this, and you eventually you've learned enough to where like well maybe you maybe I could I could dive into this conversation, but that takes time, right? Like you just don't barge in and start you know inserting yourself into that conversation that's been going on, and so when you seek to kind of engage in this interdisciplinary work. Uh, there is a process by which, I mean, you've got to do your homework. You've got to do justice to the theories and the work that all this work that has gone on within this discipline so that you could get some knowledge from that. And so you want to give credit to, to those people who have done that work and do justice to that. And, and, uh, and so I think there is a there is a, an ethical responsibility to if you're going to pick up these tools, to not just kind of go about the slapdash uh, uh, process of, of. And maybe it always feels that, like so we don't want to feel so inadequate that I like we never we dare not tread on 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 the wrong turf. That is the wrong thing, and that I think that is uh, that is constricting, and that doesn't help us at all either. Um, and yet at the same time, like I I, I do applaud um, at, attempts to want to engage across disciplines, but also I think that requires us being intentional about asking people within that frame or perspective or like within that kind of background or discipline who have already been engaging in that conversation for a while to say, man, help me out here. I I, I really want to know, am I doing this right? Am I looking at this right? Like what other resources do I have? And ideally people are more than willing to, you know, I, I have found people are more than willing to say, you know, hey, this, this is, don't go this way, go that way. Here's where the conversation is headed. And I think that's really helpful.
1: Yeah. It reminds me of the Dunning-Kruger curve. If you've ever seen that, there's mm. a paper, uh, by two psychologists, uh, um, Dunning and Kruger, no one remembers their first name, uh, two, two psychologists, Dunning and Kruger, um, who wrote a paper called unskilled and unaware of it. Um, and people, they, they did a whole bunch of surveys and people who knew a little bit about a discipline uh, often significantly overestimated how much they knew and so you know you, you, you know 10% of the, of the of a subject matter and they ever an estimate they're like 80% are really really good at this. And then, as people learn more, they realize how big the discipline is, and and there's this what they call the the pit of despair. That you you, you slide down into this pit of despair, and you're never going you feel like you're never gonna learn enough about the discipline. There's always going to be more. And then people who are, have been in, in in something for their entire lives, subject matter experts they're still only estimating they know, you know 60, 70, 80% of, of what okay. there is. And they, there's that some form of humility there that they know that there's they're never going to um, really grasp everything. It's like Einstein, you know, the more like more I know, the more I realize how much there is left to know.
2: Right, it's kind of like the uh, the Dunning Kruger is the opposite of the imposter syndrome. Like neither neither one <laughs> of those neither one of those is good. You want to have some kind of happy medium between yeah. Dunning Kruger effect and an uh, imposter syndrome.
3: Yeah, that's yeah. right. And I, I like the that phrase intellectual humility. Yes. I, mm-hmm. I feel like that need, ought to be a phrase that follows us wherever we go and as we go into any kind of interdisciplinary study.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I don't know if it's if it's uh, you know, u- unique to biblical studies or uniquely uh, an issue in biblical studies, but um, because it's so interdisciplinary, or at least, you know, the scriptures are. Uh, and and I think um, Ben Witherington uh, wrote a book a number of years ago, like, I think it was called like, is there a doctor in the house or something? And it was kind of like how, like, if you do biblical studies, you need to think about yourself as being a, a GP, a general practitioner, you know, rather than uh, specifically like a certain type of specialist, because you've really got to, you know, incorporate so many different sorts of things, and and perhaps this, uh, you know, the Dunning-Kruger effect is uh, especially uh, acute uh, because we don't want to dabble uh, mm-hmm. and then uh, think that we, yeah, you know, are competent.
1: Yeah
3: and i think this is why it's important to have conversations with each other so that we can be if we are entering into a an element of interdisciplinary research that we think might be helpful to to talk to people who have used it before those who are are experts in that particular field to see if we're if we're getting it and and i also don't think that we should be using some discipline just for the sake of doing something new or right. for the sake of, of looking fancy, but for the sake of really illuminating something that we want to see or looking at an old question in a new way or uh, seeing something fresh. I see, I guess I see interdisciplinary study as not something that Using another discipline in place of some of the, uh, the tried and true disciplines that we use for study well studying text that what, the text is what we have. So something that is textual and literary and historical seems to me ought to be the foundation of what we what we do. But if we're going to engage another discipline, it's not to replace that kind of historical, linguistic, grammatical, Uh, exegesis, but to come alongside it to illuminate in some way to to show up an aspect of what we're doing that we might have missed or overlooked, Mm -hmm. or that we've just been looking at the question the same way for all this time that uh, that bringing in another discipline kind of shakes us up so that that we we might see something that we hadn't seen before.
2: Right, yeah. like uh, another other tools in the toolbox. Yeah,
1: to, exactly. To do that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it stops the hammer syndrome. Yeah, yeah right, right. Which a, which is a
2: which is a problem. I, I think that allows you. I mean, I think Daryl Bach in seminary used to talk about it, you know, just the the text itself being kind of like this crystal or this diamond that like you hold up to the light and you just kind of keep on turning it in a, in this way. And I think using other other disciplines and other tools from other disciplines allows us to keep on turning that mm-hmm. that diamond to get a new a new angle, a new light. Yeah, and shine a new
1: light on it as well. Yeah. 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 The advantage of of being able to the diamond imagery is that um you often use different frequency lights to be able to mm. to see different th- parts in a in a gem um right. that, that you can't see with just normal white light right. so. Yeah. so one of the things that um any good conference uh, i think it's worth doing takeaways from um so i'm I'm really interested to know uh we've talked about the take our takeaways from the conference but to where where to next for for your research i mean Sam, you've just finished uh, uh, this book and it's been released um, what's on next on the horizon for you?
2: yeah, I think um a lot of the work we're doing now I'm working with a team of uh, experimental social psychologists who are trying to gather data to understand how religious rhetoric gets used in this way to to uh, leverage enmity the the enmity that is already there that is that the feelings of persecution, the feelings of and and the social identities that are conflated uh the religious, racial, national identities, to be able to leverage that to political ends. Mm -hmm. We're trying to understand how that is being used in in contemporary political discourse. Um, And we're trying to, uh, you know, I I think if there is an activistic uh, activistic component to uh, what I'm doing, we're trying to talk to leaders. Uh, So we have recently, uh, we wrote a report for the January 6th committee um, that was uh, put out back in March. Um, and the January 6th committee is now kind of un- uh, releasing their evidence and, the, and having a conversation nationally about those. So we, we don't know if our, our work will be used, but it's we want to continue to engage in those kinds of potential conversations with uh, political leaders um, to be able to let them know ab- about the potential threats of, of white Christian nationalist ideology, how it's potentially being used and leveraged, and how it's exacerbating... Contemporary rifts in American politics, uh, and and potentially toward the toward a, a future powder keg of of, a, of an event, another January sixth or something worse. Um, so I think we're trying to uh, we're trying to see where where we can where we can intervene in contemporary problems with our our research. I think we've collected enough data. I mean we've, we're still collecting data, but I, I think we have we've collected enough data to see that this is a problem It's something that we want. Uh, to speak to conversations and get the word out. And so I think that's kind of the next project is, is what opportunities will avail themselves or what, what opportunities can we take advantage of to be able to, uh, to really get some things done and talk to people.
3: Yeah, I think for me, I, I'm perpetually interested in how stories shape who we are and who we think we are. Uh, and so I'm interested in how real readers or how actual readers respond to texts, respond to characters. And I've I've been trying to learn a lot and and have begun to use uh, learn a lot about and have started to use cognitive linguistics to help me think about how how actual people process texts both in the ancient world and today. I think what social identity theory does for me in bringing that in is uh, helping me to think about the the group element that that social element how do not just individual readers but how do how do groups how how do groups process texts how do individuals and groups process texts and how are they influenced by texts and by characters how do we process characters how do we relate to them how do we recognize them uh, even as Characters may uh, cross from one text to another or one discourse to another. How do we recognize them and why do we keep recognizing them? Why do stories continue to uh, influence us in, in certain ways as individuals and groups? And, and of course, I'm interested in, well, I'm looking at Mark, but I'm interested in the gospel story. Why do we keep, why have people continued to come back to the gospel story uh year after year, decade after decade, century after century. Mm-hmm.
2: I think it's something at the core. Like I think the, the questions that you're exploring in your own research and I think a lot of what we talked about at the at the, the conference um, re- I think really underscored to me the importance, the vital importance of the humanities and different ways of, uh, of diving back into the humanities, why they're so important to resource and, and so important to, I think, um, continue to put effort in and new kinds of ways of engaging because they, they, they answer fundamental questions about human experience, about human uh, interaction, dialogue and rhetoric. How do people use stories? It's one of the most fundamental things that we, we, we engage in. And so uh, I think, you know, to be able to unpack those things more um, provides such, I think, kind of like a, a strong argument for just like why, why, why all of these questions are uh, so key and important to pursue. Yeah, well, I, I
0: really enjoyed uh, this conference. I enjoyed um, learning from all of you and and uh, the rest of the participants, and uh, it's 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 a lot of fun because I feel like my my project is is, is you know cer- certainly on the biblical study side, and and, and um, uh, to be able to you know kind of like process uh, while I'm listening to everybody, you know how how everyone's doing their integrative work and their inter- interdisciplinary work, and kind of uh, think about some ways even to continue to modify and adjust uh, what I've done to, you know, make it, make it, you know, more conversant with the sorts of conversations that were taking place, um, the past couple of days. Um, you know, so like what Peter Lau was talking about with leadership and it was just really helpful as I was thinking about further shaping of, of my, of my project. And so, um, yeah, it was, a it was, a it was a blast and, uh, learned a lot and it's, it's I, 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 love, uh, interdisciplinary work, uh, so much because, um, yeah, there's only so much you can do. If yeah, but going back to the hammer thing, if all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Yeah, to be able to uh, to have some other tools in your toolbox and um, uh, think about it from from different angles, it's uh, it's a lot of fun.
1: Well, thank you all for for coming, not just on the podcast, but being part of this conference. Uh, it's been a blast. So that was a privilege. Thanks. It was
3: great. <laughs>